you so much, Jenna. Take your Bible and turn to James chapter 1. We are back in the book of James today. And if you were in Adult Bible Fellowship, you have been reading this passage and talking about this passage. So I hope this will be an encouragement for you today. James chapter 1. You know, things change. The world changes. People change. Change happens a lot. And it can be very unsettling for us to see when the world changes. It can be very unsettling. It's it's really kind of silly, but there are some things about uh, when I was growing up that I really miss, uh, that they, things just aren't the same as they used to be. I loved to go when I was uh, younger. I used to love going to a music store and browsing through CDs and, and picking out a CD and, and agonizing over which one I was going to spend my hard-earned money on, not knowing if it was good or not, and then taking it home. And there was the moment of truth when you would put it on and make sure that it actually was as good as you were hoping. And if it wasn't, oh, well, there goes another $20 down the drain. But if, if it was good, you had something that you were very happy. You know, I used to love that. And uh, that world is gone. I mean, you just don't, there's no need to do that. Pull up your phone and you can pull up uh, any song you want to hear, and you can hear it within seconds. Uh, when I was growing up, we used to love to read the newspaper in the morning. First thing every morning, uh, the newspaper would come down. We'd have to share the different sections of the newspaper. My dad uh, would always start with the sports section, so that meant we had to deal with the fight over the comics section. Um, and somebody usually got stuck with uh, the first section, of the, which had the political uh, stuff in it. And so we would work through the world news and things like that until we got our turn to read the comics uh, that day. That world, in our home at least, doesn't exist anymore. I mean, it's just not, not the way things go. Uh, change sometimes can be, can be irritating that things change. Uh, sometimes it's for the better, sometimes it's for worse. Sometimes life can change in a moment. In a rather serious uh, note, when I was in college, I remember a, a very distinctly a, very, uh, a life-changing moment for me and for a friend of mine. I got a phone call uh, from my dad who said, uh, you need to go find your friend who's, who, who's in college with you. You need to go find him now. And he needs to call his father because his mother has just lost her life in a car wreck. And I went and found my friend, and uh, he had no idea what was going on. And I, I said, can you come talk to me? Can you pull him out of work? And he said, is everything all right? I said, hey, I, you just need to call your dad. And he went from smiling to weeping, and it was in a moment. Everything in that man's life changed in a moment. Life can change just like that. And, you know, sometimes it takes a long time for things to change. Uh, you're, you, you don't see your nieces and nephews for a, a year or for a few months, and you see them, and you're, wow, you got so big. Even we were gone for two weeks, we came home and saw our kids, and uh, our youngest was speaking more clearly and articulating uh, in fact, I, when I left, I thought she might not even remember that we were gone. When, I'd, when I woke her up, uh, first thing she said when I got home, I, I woke her up from her nap, and she looked at me, she said, you're back. And I said, oh, you remember. She said, did you, buy, did you bring me a present? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> you know, there, there are many challenges that test our faith in God. There really are. And, and change is one of those things that, that can rock us because it change in a good way is great, but change in a bad way is hard. And, and, and when we see things change, it makes us uncomfortable. It makes us wonder, is God really in, in charge? Is God really in control? And part of the Christian life, part of Christian living is practical Christian thinking. This is really key. We have to learn to think like believers. We have to learn that we process our world through God's perspective, through the lens of the Word of God. We have got to train our thinking. 
And, and it's very important for us to learn how to place ourselves in this world in which we live. How, how, do, we, how do we live in this world? How do we exist in this world? How do we exist with our, our place ourselves in this, in this changing world? The Bible in this passage, for James chapter 1, tells us of this changing world and our unchanging God and gives us help for how we are to think about Him and how we are to navigate this world. As we look at this passage, let us go to God in prayer and ask His blessing on our time together this morning. Father, we are hopelessly and helplessly in need of You. We need You desperately in this moment to be here among us. We need the power of Your Spirit to open up our hearts to truth. We need Your Word to speak to us and to reveal where we need to change. And Father, I pray that the power of your Spirit and the power of your Word together would, would, would break our hearts before you. Help us to recognize our, our wickedness, our weakness, our sinfulness, and Lord, uh, seek you for forgiveness, and that we come with repentant hearts. Uh, Lord, we're thankful that you are an unchanging God, immortal, invisible, and that you, you are alone, are holy. And we're thankful as we have worshiped you now uh, with song, let us worship you now with our hearts as we come before you in your word. Let our hearts be still. Let us put aside the distractions and focus on what your word is teaching us that we might be changed by the power of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. In the first few verses of this book, James has spoken to an audience that has been scattered around the world unexpectedly facing all kinds of challenges there, the 12 tribes which were scattered abroad. He's talked to them about how to think about conflict and how to think about circumstances, that they are to count it all joy when they fall into various trials because the testing of their faith produces patience, and that patience should have its perfect work, that they may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And if they lack wisdom, they can ask God who gives to all men liberally or bountifully. He does not hold back. In fact, if you ask God for wisdom, He will give it to you but you need to come to Him in faith. And we come to verse 9, we see that we find several commands or several uh, important things for us to consider. As we look at verse 9, we first need to see that God calls for us to trust Him when life changes. Would you read with me as we see in verse 9, He says, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. We are to trust God when life changes. When we see life changing around us, trust God. We need to rejoice in the reversals. This is hard to really put your mind around, so I need you to think with me. The first part is easy to understand. He says, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. We all can understand it if you're a lowly brother. Lowly just means that you have no um, clout in this world, that you're not someone who people say, oh, I know someone with significance. It's that guy. No, no, not that person. The lowly brother is someone who is mostly society at large, does not regard them as of anyone of consequence, and it says, let him glory in his exaltation. There are a couple options for how we are to read this. One, are we to understand that this is his future heavenly exaltation with God? It's a reminder, friend, if you're low here on earth, don't worry. You're going to be exalted and sit with God. You're going to be one of God's children in heaven. You're going to be glorified. That is an exaltation we can get behind. That's exciting. Let the glory, let the lowly brother glory in his, in his exaltation. Praise, praise God. But it also could be referring to his earthly exaltation. Because here's the thing, when you're lowly on earth, you won't always be lowly on earth. Sometimes lowly people get exalted. Sometimes the poor person gets rich. 
We've all seen it happen. We've all seen people who, in fact, uh, we've all known people probably who did not used to be well off, and now they are well off. They've been exalted. They used to be, no one thought highly of them, and now they're thought highly of. Because look at the next thing he, he, he says. He says um, that this person is taken beyond their current circumstance of prestige and honor. They're taken to exaltation, and everyone can agree that this is great. Everyone can understand this. This is the same drive that pushes people to play the lottery, right? Take chances on business ventures. They want to be exalted. But notice he says the rich should also glory in his humiliation. That's where it gets a little bit harder for us to appreciate and understand. Because no one minds being glorying and being exalted, but are you telling me that I should glory in being demoted? That, that the, the rich person should also glory in his humiliation. That's why I think he's talking about physical, this physical world we live in, that the rich person, one day you won't always be rich. We all know the story. There are rich people who no longer are rich, just like there are poor people who are no longer poor. Why should the rich glory in his humiliation? What possible benefit could a rich person gather to be humbled like this? It's better to be wealthy than to be poor, they might be thinking. Why should we rejoice in the reversals? Well, we should remember the end, and that's what's going on here in verse 10. He says, because, and whenever you see the word because or for, you need to take special note because he's explaining something here. He says, because, let me explain why. Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat Then it withers the grass, the flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will also fade away in his pursuit. There is a temptation for rich people to think that your riches are going to last forever. They will not. There's a temptation for rich people to think that these riches will give me a sense of security, that my money won't let me down, I can pay my way out of any problem. It will not work that way forever. In fact, when we are, temp- when we are humbled, it is to re- be reminded that our physical positions are, possessions are temporary. Everything we have is temporary. As a flower of the field, he will pass away. The flowers are a sign of God's grace. They're a sign of God's beauty, and yet they pass away quickly. They're given by God to bless us, and this provides us opportunities to trust God. So, as a rich person, your exercise of trust will be different from the way a poor person trusts trusts and exercises their trust in God. As a rich person, you must lower yourself and learn not to trust in riches. And let me break it to you. Every one of you are rich. In the broad scope of things, you think about it, and as it concerns our human culture and human history, everyone sitting in this room is rich. Every one of us, we tend to think of ourselves as poor. Everyone does. We say, well, I'm, I'm the poor person here. I don't, because you look at someone else who's wealthy, you say, I don't have that much money, so I'm definitely poor. Friends, you are beyond wealthy compared to most people in this world. And with that, thing, I want you to take this warning that we ought to not put our trust in our finances. How quickly we think, well, I'm not worried about where I'm getting food because I always have a credit card. I can go down to McDonald's and swipe a credit card. I got a meal for four. It's really easy. Like, I don't have to worry about those things. Friend, you need to recognize that every, as we are all rich, we have been so blessed and so much to be grateful for. We need to exercise, exercise trust by looking past our present circumstances and remembering the end. Remember the end. Remember what God is doing with us. He says, as the flower of the field passes, so you will pass. Your riches are not going to last forever. Your wealth is not going to last forever. Your house, what you prize is not going to last 
forever, and things will not always be the way they are right now. Life changes. Life is transient. It's like the shifting of the wind, and we need to focus. Look at verse 11. Focus on the future that will happen, not on our present circumstances of life. For no sooner has the sun risen with burning heat than it withers the grass, the flower falls, its beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man will also be in the pursuit of his riches. We have to be careful because the world is always changing. Whole nations and empires that once ruled the world are gone without a trace. We were in Europe, um, and we got a wonderful opportunity to visit and see monuments and see uh, castles and see things that are, are significant because they belong to history. Um, as I was preparing this message, I couldn't help but think there's a wonderful poem by Percy Shelley, who was a British romantic po- poet, and he writes about going, and he says, um, I'm just going to read it to you. He says, I met a traveler from an antique land who said, so he's, he's meeting someone who talks about coming across this monument. Just pay, see if you can follow along with this poem here. He says, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command Tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive. Stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. On that pedestal, the words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck. Boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. There is a man who built a statue for himself and said, I am the king of kings. Look on me, you mighty, and despair. And where is his monument now? In the desert, broken down. There are many such nations. Things will not always be the way they are. It, means seem, it may seem right now that our country is unstoppable, that our country is great, Most of you know better than that. But you look around and you say, you know, things change. And every time things change, it's a reminder that God is God and we are not. That God is great and we are little. That He is in command and we are not. The Bible calls for us to rejoice when reversals take place. Because we are at the mercy of God. Material wealth and material poverty should not define us. They do not determine our worth in this life. Both the rich and the poor can glory in the reversal of life because it points to the ultimate power and the ultimate authority that rests in God and His choice to exalt or bring down for His own purposes. You can glory in these things if you trust that God is at work. Trust God when life changes and love God when facing temptation. It seems here that two kinds of tests are given for the believer. First is a testing whose purpose is to reveal the true nature of someone's heart. First, we see that we are to endure testing for a heavenly reward. Read with me in verse 12. He says, blessed is the man who endures temptation, that is testing, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those 
who love him. I, I personally believe this is uh, temptation is a, as a kind of testing. There's the word temptation, parasmos, which can mean either a temptation to sin or just a testing, genuine, a, genu- uh, a general kind of testing. And that seems to be the case here. Uh, the English Standard Version translates it, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. That is probably a, a correct uh, rendering here. But notice what he says, blessed is the man. Happy is the man. This is the same word Jesus uses in his Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed is the man who endures or is steadfast under, under his testing. Because in this testing, after he has been tested, he will be shown to be authentic. He will be approved. The testing reveals his true nature. And once that happens, then the crown of life will be his reward. To endure means to stand up beyond an expected point of time. Like he'd had no idea he would last that long. But there he is, enduring. He keeps going. Revelation chapter 2 tells us that the crown of life is given to those who are faithful unto death and to those who endure. Look at this verse. He says, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. You may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. The crown of life. Endure testing. For heavenly reward, the crown of life, and notice also that we are to unmask temptation, to avoid an earthly disaster. And, and I see this, he says here in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away of his own desires and enticed. Verse 15, then when desire has conceived... It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. death. <clears throat> One of the ways that you reject temptation is by understanding what temptation is. Because once you unmask what temptation is, it loses all of its power, because temptation deceives by not telling the whole truth. It'll happen every time. It, it, temptation lures you with the promise, but it cannot deliver the promise, and it always hides the consequences of your decision. The classic example of a temptation or a lure is that, when you know, how many of you go fishing, right? You guys, you guys, those of you who like to go fishing, you use the, the line that has the worm and it has the hook, and the worm is hiding the hook, and that worm looks really good to that fish, and so when that, wor- when that fish pursues that worm, does he see the hook? No, he sees the worm. And so he bites the worm, not knowing that it's fake and rubber and bought at Walmart, right, in that little pack, and not knowing that on the other end of that worm is a hook that gets him in the mouth, and it gets set, and he is caught, and now he is trapped. A lure does not reveal its true nature to you. A lure tells you promises and hides the disaster. There are three big truths here that unmask temptation, because temptation hides and deceives, and in order to understand, we must unmask temptation for what it is. Number one, truth number one is that God does not tempt you to sin. God does not tempt you to sin. We have a distinction between testing and temptation here. Where God does test, we have examples of that in the Scripture where God tests Abraham in Genesis chapter 22 about whether he was willing to offer his firstborn son to the Lord as an offering. Temptation does not come from God. God is not only not tempted to sin, He doesn't bring temptation. God is holy. He has nothing to do 
with this sin. That's first truth. God does not tempt you to sin. Therefore, if you're being tempted to sin, does that come from God? No. No. Let's try it again. If you are being tempted to sin, does that come from God? No. You ought to know that. You ought to remember that. You ought to think on this. I'm being tempted to sin. Therefore, God is not pleased with this. This is not from God. Secondly, your desires draw you away and deceive you. The source of temptation in verse 14 is very clear. He says, you cannot blame temptation on anyone but yourself. How many of us have found ourselves saying, well, you made me angry? Oh, if you'd have just done that, I wouldn't have done this, right? Well, I mean, it's understandable that I lost my temper because you messed this up, right? And we, we, we blame other people. We blame Satan. We say the devil made me do it. We blame spiritual warfare. We say, well, I've been under spiritual attack, so I can't help but sit. The Bible, those things might be true. You might have other people in your life who, who entice you to sin. You might have other people in life who do things that make it hard for you to love God. You might have spiritual warfare happening in your life, but you are responsible for your sinful decisions. He says, you are drawn away. Every person, look at verse 14, read it carefully with me. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. We are drawn away. We are pulled away by these cravings, these desires. They can be either positive or negative in the Bible, but here it's clearly negative that they pull us away from God's plan, away from truth, and they desire to entice us, to trap us, to lure us out of the safety of God's will and into the danger of sin. When you sin, when you're falling into temptation, it's your lusts that drive you there. And, and that, you need to be aware of that. Sinful desires, number three, bring sinful consequences. This is a disaster I was referring to earlier, the earthly disaster. Notice the natural flow progression here. He actually uses birth and pregnancy imagery here because James says that this progression is inevitable. When you are pregnant, if everything goes to plan, then you will have a baby. It's a natural consequences of pregnancy. The baby follows. The birth follows. And here, the natural consequences of the conception of evil is a desire, an evil desire leads to Sin, and sin, once it matures, brings forth what? Death. It's this, it begins in the heart. And, and you have to back up. Most of us, when we say, when, if you sin, if you ask for forgiveness from sin, often we will, we will identify a sin that we commit, and we don't back up far enough to see that the desire is what led to that sin. And the desire, the sinful desire, brings forth that sin. In fact, in Genesis chapter 3, we see this on display as a picture when it says uh, that we tell the story of the woman, uh, Eve, as she is drawn to the, the sin of eating of the tree. It says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took. Notice she saw first and desired some things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, all of these things were desired in her heart before she took and ate, and she began to desire what God said was not good, and she identified as good. She said, that is good. God said, that's not good. And that's the essence of sin, is that God says, this is not good, and we say, I think it is. And we reach for it. We think it will give us something. 
And God says that this is so disastrous because it leads to destruction, it leads to pain, it leads to death. In fact, we're told in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that our strategy for dealing with these lusts is to flee, flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Love God when you face temptation. The greatest way to battle temptation is to deepen your love for God so that the things that tempt us seem small and insignificant to the great God who you would offend. You need to to pour your heart into loving your Savior so that sinning against Him does not even seem like an attractive option. When we sin and when we give into temptation, we are not loving God. Who are we loving? We're loving ourselves. And the short pleasures we believe we will receive by disobeying our God. But to refuse temptation is to love and trust God because you believe He has something greater and better than our sins could ever promise. Sin's gifts are wicked and evil and deceptive, but God's gifts are always good. And that's why we must live for God by accepting His good gifts. Look at verse 16. We find this truth that our unchanging God always gives good gifts. Do not be deceived, verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. I I find it interesting he begins with do not be deceived. This happens several times in the Bible where it says do not be deceived. It's a warning, and it's a clue to me that this is an area that we are easily deceived in that we easily miss. It's like when you're getting instructions from someone and they say, oh, by the way, now, this part's easy. This part's tricky. I mean, this part right here, pay close attention right here because this part people miss. And I always perk up. I want to hear, okay, well, I might make the same mistake. People make this mistake all the time. What mistake do people make? They make the mistake thinking that God either gives bad gifts or that good gifts come from somewhere else. He says, don't be deceived. This is something we must believe. Every good gift comes from above. And we have verses like this in Matthew chapter 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For anyone who asks received. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. What man is there among you if his son asks for bread will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he'll give him a serpent. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God loves giving you good gifts. And we say, yeah, I like that idea. Lord, I need a Ferrari. (laughs) Guess what? That may not be a good gift for you. You may die in that Ferrari, driving 110 miles an hour up I-77. God knows what you can handle. God knows who you are. We don't know ourselves. We think, like, I can handle a Ferrari. God, I could handle a Ferrari. Lord, if you gave me a Ferrari, I could handle it. That's what a lot of people are thinking. But God knows what is good. And God gives good gifts to his children. God always gives good gifts to his children. And he's the father of lights. He's the father of the sun, the moon, the stars. He has everything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And he's the unchanging God. Look at this picture with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. That means God is so unchanging that there's not even a shadow due to his, un- due to his change. Like he doesn't even barely shift and there's a shadow shift. Like God is, is always the same. And he's always a good God. And he's always giving good gifts to his children. He will not change, though the earth change. Psalm 102 
Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them, and they will be changed, but you are the same. Your years will have no end. The children of your servants will continue, and their descendants will be established before you. God is a faithful God, a good God. Lamentations 3, some of you, your favorite verse in the Bible. Though the Lord's mercies, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And as we learn in Hebrews, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our God that we should live for is our good God who's unchanging. He always gives good gift, and our unchanging God always desires our good. Because if you look at the next verse as he finishes out this section, he says, of his own will... He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. What's he saying there? So sin and temptation are in the business of birth. We saw that earlier. He said, when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And here he uses birth imagery too. He says God is also in the birthing business, but his gift is our new birth of his own will. It's out of God's desire. God wants something for you. It's out of his desire, and he wants something amazing to give you a new birth. Your your first birth has a problem and that you're a sinner, And, and you need a second birth. If you're not born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says as much. If you're going to be stubborn and say, I'm good enough in what I am, I'm good enough. I am accomplished enough. I can do what I want to do. I can succeed in this world on my own. Then you will not see the kingdom of heaven because that is, that is a first birth kind of thinking. God says you need a new birth, a, a new birth that comes from God himself. Of his own will, he brought us forth. He birthed us. How did he do this? What's the method of this? By the word of truth. This is not something that comes from your striving or from the working of men. We can't give ourselves a new birth. I mean, that's the way it is in life, too. Like, you can't birth yourself. It's, it's, it's an amazing thing. God says he does this by the word, by the power of his word. It's the word of God. What, I, what I'm able to preach today, what God's word is sitting in your hands. If you have a Bible, God's word is the power. And he says as much in, in Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Our faith comes by hearing in God's Word, the power of God's Word that makes us new, that creates new life in us. And in fact, it's always God's Word that brings life. From the very first page in your Bible, God said, let there be light, and light was. God created everything by the power of His voice. And in 2 Corinthians 4, it says, it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The same powerful God who spoke this world into existence is speaking into your heart and shining the light of Jesus in your heart today. What an amazing, amazing truth. And what's the purpose for all this? Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, and then that word that gives us the purpose for why he did such a thing. That we see his desire for us here, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God's plan is that we are a, a kind of first fruits, that first we are his creatures, we are his creation, we are, our position is that of creature. 
God made us. He has the right to tell us who we are and what we should do and how we should live. Uh, first fruits is special. He uses an analogy here. In fact, he uses the word kind of to indicate this. In fact, one of the commentaries I was reading pointed this out. He says, in the Old Testament, the first fruits of living things, including humans, were those offered to God in thanksgiving and became his special possession. He says that when we come to him, when we are birthed by him, we are a kind, a special kind of first fruits that he has created. There's something special And the new birth is the essential part of being this fullest person that God has intended for you to be. You know, He made us in His image from the very beginning. God made man in His image, but that image has been marred and scarred by sin. Being in Christ, we have a promise. If anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. All things have passed away. All things have become new. And now we have the opportunity to be what we were intended to be from the beginning God's plan, God's plan and His designs for us are good. We should live for God by accepting His good gifts. His gift is the new birth, and the method is the word of truth, and His desire for us is our good, our righteousness, His righteousness for us. We're living in a changing world, a changing world where our circumstances are always changing, people are always changing, our perspectives are often changing, but God is unchanging, and God is good. And I hope that's an encouragement for you today. Notice how these voices point us to that unchanging God. Notice how these points, my message, point us to that unchanging God. Number one, we need to trust Him. If God is unchanging, you can trust Him. Number two, we need to love Him. We need to love Him. And we need to live for Him. We need to remember Him. We need to think on Him, consider Him. Even when the temptations of the world are coming upon us, they're luring us away from trusting Him. We need to recognize His good and perfect gifts for what they are. Because life is changing and we're all getting older. I was reading this morning in my devotions, I read through Ecclesiastes 12. And I, I'm not going to go through it today because we don't have enough time. But Ecclesiastes 12 talks, he says, remember your Creator in the days of your youth. And then he describes what it's like to start getting older. He talks about when your teeth start falling out. And when you're the windows of your house grow dim. That means you can't see things like you used to see. And, and all the other, the, the, he talks about some other things. I'm not exactly sure what they mean, but I have a feeling I, I kind of know. <laughs> Might not be right for polite company today. And he says that all these things will happen. You know, your body will begin to fall apart and things will change, but our God is unchanging and our God has given us promises that one day our bodies will be resurrected and we'll be glorified. And the promises that He has made to us will be completed. And we can rest in that, enjoy in that. And the last thing I wanted to end with is this. When, when I was in college, I remember having this thought, it like, a, like a bolt of lightning, and it's so obvious. It's so obvious, but to me it was like revolutionary. And it is simply this, that when we talk about temptation, we talk about let no, man, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God. I, I often would think that does God have my best interest in mind? And, and that, that's a simple question, but does God have your best interest in mind? Yes, He's a good God who loves you. He loves you so much Jesus died on your behalf. If God has your best interest in mind, does Satan have my best interest in mind? Absolutely not. He comes to kill, destroy, and to, to, to maim, to murder. Like, Satan is the opposite of that. 
then why is it even a struggle to decide who to trust? If God has my best interest in mind, then trust Him, love Him. As Peter said, where else should we go? You have the words of life. I think similarly, we need to come, when it comes to our temptation moments, we need to love Him, and we need to recognize He does love us. I mean, you can't always understand what He's doing. Like children often cannot understand what their parents are doing. Why would you make me do this? There's a reason. There's a purpose. There's a plan. Our God is unchanging, and He loves you with an unchanging and undying love. Can we pray together as we close? Father, we ask You today to work in our hearts. We thank You for Your faithfulness that is new every morning. We cannot even begin to appreciate fully how great Your faithfulness is. And Lord, I think of those who are struggling with temptation in their life. Maybe they've given in to a temptation, and they have become weakened. They have become accustomed to sin. And today, you need to jerk them out of that comfort and show them where their sin is leading them. Father, I pray they would recognize you have their best interest in mind. Father, for those who are struggling with changes in life, they have faced changes. They've either been demoted or promoted, and, and either they're becoming proud or they're becoming depressed, and they need, to learn, they need to learn you, they need to love you, and they need to rest and trust in you through this time of, of, of turmoil. And those who are struggling with the gifts they've been given by God, they need to learn to receive these good gifts from you because you have a good purpose and a good end for us. Father, wherever we find ourselves on this spectrum, I pray that today we would commit ourselves to trusting you and loving you, the unchanging God in our changing world. May we rest in you now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As always, there's an opportunity if you need spiritual help. We have blue cards that we ask you to fill out on the back. Put a note on there. We'd love for somebody to follow up with you. I'll follow up with you personally. If you'd like to talk about something spiritual here, if you'd like some help, if you don't know if you're, tr- if you're going to heaven, if you don't know if you have eternal life through Jesus, uh, please don't leave this place until you talk to somebody about that. We'd love to help you sit down and show you from an open Bible how you can know for certain that Jesus Christ is your Savior, that He have eternal life. We're going to stand and sing a song together. We're going to sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Is that right? 119. Would you stand with us as we sing this tremendous hymn? If you need to deal with God, you can stay in your seat, but 119. Great is thy faithfulness. We'll sing the first and the last stanza.